When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of Gators Breakdown is brought to you by Shark Coatings. Visit sharkfloorcoatings.com when you need professional floor coating services done right the first time. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus. Starting at $3 a month, get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shoutouts, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to gatorsbreakdown.supportingcast.fm to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me here on this Monday night, co-host Will Miles. You can find him at ReadAndReaction.com. Read and Reaction YouTube on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. And Will... Hope you had a good Thanksgiving, all the time with family uh, and uh, everything that comes along uh, with this time of year. So, uh, man, I hope, hope you and your family uh, got to spend a whole lot of time together. Yeah, a little bit too much on Sunday. It was raining <laughs> up here. and My wife and I both looked at each other like, it's time to send them back to school. But, uh, <laughs> no, nah, it was a good time. We we uh, we uh, stayed up here, didn't have anybody visiting, which is kind of unique for us. Usually we're heading down to Florida this time of year. So That's right, uh, that's right. You know, we're um, going down a couple of weeks for something else. So, uh yeah, you know, I'll 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 be down there soon enough to experience two days of sunshine, and then <laughs> and then back up here where it's gray and dreary, and you know a lot like a lot like Twitter after the game the other night. Ooh, tell me about it. Yes, uh, Friday, of course, it was Black Friday night. Florida, Florida State get together, and Florida State gives Florida the sixth loss of the season for Florida to finish the season six and six, and oof, oh. Uh, Bummer into the season, Will, after you know beating South Carolina, and we've heck, we've seen what's happened to them since then. But Florida beating South Carolina, and then everything looking kind of kind of on the way up, only for uh, Florida to drop the last two games, Vandy, FSU, to end the season. Florida ends six and six, and of course, Will, we can get into. It. I know you released an article uh, detailing and looking at the, what what you saw uh, in Florida's loss to. FSU and um, I guess overall big takeaway, maybe each side of the ball. 
Yeah, I mean, so on the offensive side of the ball, I think my takeaway is is that Anthony Richardson remains an enigma and incredibly inconsistent. And he played fantastic in the first half, or at least until that last drive of the first half. And then from there on, he was he was just terrible from until essentially the final drive. And you know, there there's a if you score thirty eight points, you should be able to win the game. At the same time, like it's realistic to look at that and say, can we just get a little bit of consistency at all? And, you know, if you look back at his last eight or nine games, basically since the USF game, it's been up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And, you know, that stuff isn't going to fly at the next level. And quite honestly, it wouldn't fly for another year of college football. Um, Mm. So frustrating night on the offensive side of the ball, because this was a team that at its high, at its most efficient, has the ability to put up points on anybody, which isn't something that we could say last year but at its low has the ability to put up points on nobody (laughs) and to have those highs and those lows. It was just sort of a microcosm that in the first half, it looked like Florida state couldn't stop. I mean, it literally looked like Florida was playing against the Florida defense in the first half. And then in the second half, it finally looked like they were playing against the Florida state defense on the defensive side of the ball. My takeaway is that the team that the staff is committed to its scheme Mm -hmm. and it's not going to make an adjustment for the opponent. And I don't know whether I like that or not, but I know that they're going to crash and burn with that philosophy or they're going to succeed with that philosophy because it was pretty clear coming in from the film that I looked at at least that playing zone against Jordan Travis was the best way to neutralize him. And they decided they were going to go man to man and they decided that they were going to challenge him to make throws into tight spaces. And for the most part, he wasn't actually able to do that right? except for the couple that he chucked up to Wilson on big time third downs. But what he was able to do was extend plays on third down especially down in the red zone, the two big ones that he was able to extend. And even then, make some tackles. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, it's hard to blame Scheme when you got seven guys in the backfield who could tackle him and get their hands on him. At the same time, even they that kept, had, my bad. Okay, well, well, they kept going back to that well, right? They yeah. kept doing the same thing. And I, I, when when the game started, I don't think I sent it to you, but I sent it to Nick. I went, oh, they're in, they're in single high. This is bad. Like I, I don't like being in single high single high safeties. I don't like bringing a ton of blitzes against Florida State. I don't think that's an effective way to to impact them. And they decided to keep doing it. If you go back and actually watch the film, every there's one third down where they played zone, and that was the drive where they forced it to fourth down. And then on fourth down, they played zone again, and that's the one that Trey Dean almost intercepted and took the other way. And from then on, I don't recall seeing them play zone at least you know four-man rush with a zone dropping on any other third down the rest of the game and it turns out florida state went what like nine of 16 or something on third downs they just were not successful at getting florida state off the field you know they tie the game at 38 you're sitting there going well this is the first time one of these comebacks has actually turned into a tie we've had games again you know the game Mm -hmm. against tennessee kind of was back and forth back and forth back and forth and florida could just never get over the hump same thing with lsu after lsu raced in front by a couple of touchdowns quite honestly same thing with vanderbilt last week it what you know it wasn't back and forth but florida had to race back to try to get into it this one they actually got the tie Right, they got it to where they needed to be, and Florida State just went through the defense like like it was a hot knife through butter, and that's been the story all year. Is that this defense has just not held up its end of the bargain? You look at the overall stats for the offense. The offense, I'm sure, we'll get into this. The offense has been okay. I don't think it's been fantastic. I think it's been okay, and the defense has just been terrible. And my takeaway is is that they were not willing to adjust in in my mind to what Florida State did poorly. They said this is our scheme and we're going to run it, and it. Gave up 45 points. Yeah, and not the first time that 
we could have said, hey, the offense scored enough if the defense had only done its job. So, <laughs> hey, it's a team sport. We know that. Um, there were a couple times, not many, uh, when the defense did its part and the offense uh, didn't do it. So, uh, you know, it is a take and give. But we got some overall stats we'll look into that here at the end of the season. Um there from, from, from team rankings uh, and, and what they threw out there. So really, a really good kind of offense-defense look. Uh, we'll go through the season uh, a, a bit, of course, inconsistent season there for the Gators. Uh, and we'll end the season a little bit with some roster management talk. Of course, transfer portal going to be hot and heavy <laughs> uh, coming up. You already see it starting right now. Uh, Florida, for at least for Florida, Avery Helm uh, deciding he's going to put his name into the transfer portal. But we'll kind of go back and through the recent weeks, who has been dismissed, who's put their name into the transfer portal. And, of course, about three weeks, Will, early signing day just around the corner. So plenty to get into here as we wrap up this regular season, Billy Napier's first regular season as Gators head coach. Everybody hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube right now, it really helps us out because that YouTube algorithm, something to think about with all the Gator fans watching. So let Gator fans out there, if they're out there on YouTube where they can find some Gators content right here on Gators Breakdown. And be sure, check us in the, the description there, a link to Gators Breakdown Plus that Discord server hopping, major recruiting discussion going on there right now. And, of course, all the transfer portal news, recruiting news there at Gators Breakdown Plus in that Discord. You can join by hitting that link in the description. So, well, one thing, uh, I, I sent this to you. I put it on Twitter as well. And one storyline, of course, if we want to go, we, we got a lot of overall stats to look at, but one in particular. Uh, I think we should really hone in on are the penalties uh, that really seem to dig Florida in some holes these last couple of weeks. And you can look at there. I went penalties by game uh, and put it up there for everybody. So if you're watching on YouTube, you get the graphics of it there. But I'll go through, uh, of course. And besides the last two weeks, but besides Vandy and FSU, the rest of the season, yeah, there were some high numbers. But when there were high numbers of penalties, not a lot of yardage. Uh, to go with it. So if we start with the season opener, Utah, of course, the Gators get that big win to open up the season, but there were seven penalties in that game, but only 38 yards. Kentucky, in a game you lost where you're not really blaming penalties there, three for 28. South Florida, six for 48. Tennessee, you had 10 penalties. It was your first road game of the season, but only 47 yards. No, it didn't really kill Florida in that game. Eastern Washington, five for 40. Missouri, one for, one for five. You know, didn't have uh, hardly any penalties there versus Missouri. Uh, LSU, five for 50. And then you can, you know, you had a bye week and you go play Georgia. You had seven penalties, 53 yards. There were some costly ones in there uh, a little bit, but didn't really cost, you know, Florida in that game. We knew Georgia <laughs> was probably going to win that game anyway. Texas A&M, 10 penalties, only 39 yards. South Carolina, seven for 50. And then the last couple of weeks, going to the road at Vander, Vanderbilt, seven for 80. Those third down penalties on defense, very costly for Florida. And then last week versus FSU, 10 for 91. Uh, costly penalties there as well. Uh, discipline penalties, the ones uh, you just don't want to see your team uh, commit there. And, Will, that really was just kind of looking at the last two weeks there. This, you know, we don't know what changed. Uh, you, you'd like to see penalties get better as the season goes along. But for whatever reason, there was a high number. 
But in the last two weeks, it was a high number and high yardage. It was the 15-yard variety. It was the late hits. It was the just un, uh, unexplainable for, for, for a lot of them. You don't expect to see those type of penalties in the last two games of the season, especially when you had so much momentum going into those games. You weren't killing yourself a whole lot through this season. You needed to get these last two games. You needed to ride that wave of momentum only to see something that was kind of uncharacteristic for this team show up in the last two weeks. Yeah, so I think I told you that a, a pastor buddy of mine named Josh reached out and he and I text during the games and he said that uh, you know the team plays really hard, but that they seem to they seem to be stupid and, and that's sort of a decent <laughs> assessment I think for the last couple of games. I mean, he's not insulting their intelligence. He's essentially saying that we're seeing a bunch of penalties that shouldn't you shouldn't be seeing in week eleven, week twelve of the year. You think about the illegal formation in the Vanderbilt game that essentially cost him a touchdown on Montreal Johnson long long run. Think about the illegal formation down in the red zone that could have cost them a touchdown if they hadn't gotten the pass interference penalty against Florida State um, on, on Pearsall. You think about all of the undisciplined, unnecessary roughness type penalties that, you know, hitting a guy out of bounds, shoving a guy in the back after the play's over, Egelkin coming up and hitting the Vanderbilt guy right after a 15 yard gain, you know, three seconds after the whistle. Those sorts of things are discipline penalties that you don't expect to see and do, I think, start to. Uh, start to sow doubt in terms of all the discipline and all the things that we've heard and have sort of bought into when it comes to Billy Napier. Doesn't mean that he's not that he's not disciplining these guys in private. It doesn't mean that a couple of bad games can't just be that, right? That there are a couple of bad games. I think up until the South Carolina game, we or you know through the South Carolina game, we would have said from a disciplinary pers- perspective on the field, Florida has looked very very good this year. And then you have the two stinkers there at the end. And say, okay, does that change the narrative? And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, just in terms of the overall, the overall season. And you, you look at had Florida won the Vanderbilt game, even if they pulled it out by like a point or two, the whole framework of the season feels different. Because at four and four against Georgia, we were sitting there going six and six probable, seven and five would be a gift, and eight and four is probably a miracle. And so if you get the Vanderbilt game and you lose by a touchdown to Florida State, you're unhappy that you lost to Florida State, but you're walking into the offseason saying, hey, you know, we got that three and one when we thought we were going to be two and two. Instead, the Vanderbilt, which kind of felt like, you know, house money, we're already at seven. You lose that game, you're still at six. Then you lose by a touchdown to Florida State, you're still at six, and everything just feels different. And I think it's sort of the same thing with the penalties. And, And again, I think it's hard to measure discipline with just penalties. That sometimes, I mean, if, if you go back and look in 2006, Florida was like 104th, I think, overall in penalty yardage per game. In 2008, they were like 108th. So teams were winning the national championship <laughs> when they had a lot of penalty yards. I think some of that has to do with where the penalties come from. When you're a good team, I think you want to push the edge. So you think about a team like Alabama, and everybody always complains that they get every call or that they never get holding called on them. Well, part of that is because those guys are taught to push the edge, and every once in a while they're going to get caught. But they're not going to call holding on every single play. I'm okay with a holding call every once in a while if I have a dominant offensive line. What I'm not okay with is guys constantly getting beat and dragging somebody down to the ground because they're constantly getting beat. And we didn't have that for the offensive line this year, but there's a difference between those two, right? So the aggressive type of penalty 
that Florida may get or a, or an elite team may get, I think is acceptable. And you're okay with those penalty yards. It's the 15 yarder. When you hit a guy four seconds after the whistle, those are the things and the illegal formations where you just don't line up appropriately. Those are the things that need to be eliminated and are concerning when you look at those last couple of games. Yeah, that was, that was very surprising uh, to see that come out uh, the, the last couple of weeks when we didn't see uh, those throughout the season, yeah, and I know you know where a lot of credits come in for our, uh, this season. And Napier is you know wanting to see progress throughout the season. Well, this was one area you did not, and uh, actually a regression uh, throughout the season. But speaking of the season, let's just go through it one more time. Take a look back, maybe trip down memory lane just a bit here, looking at the Gators' 2022 season, Billy Napier's first season, and. Well, the thing that sticks out the most, of course, and it's something we've harped on all year and everybody else has to, is just the maybe the inability to handle success, ride the wave of momentum. Florida just really couldn't build any. And when it seemed like they had, they just gave it away. And of course, I mean, it was the, the very first two games, Will, of the season where were, were a microcosm of the season. Uh, the, the rest of the season would go this way. You get the big win over Utah. What Florida shoots up, what will I think up to number 12 in some of the rankings there, uh, only to go next week and lose to Kentucky at home as well. You know, right? You could not ride that wave of momentum. And that don't get me wrong, you know, a lot of people come into this season. Uh, would have taken one and one versus those, but you know, everybody adjusted expectations a little bit, and that's what happens in week one sometimes. Uh, you overreact, and you know, probably expe- expectations come into it a bit too. You know, I before the season started, I pegged Florida second to East nine and three, but said if it went one way or the other, I was thinking eight and four instead of 10 or two. So, okay, you know, I wasn't expecting this big, great season. Ended up six and six, but Florida beats Utah. Maybe reset expectations a bit, but then, like I said, it came crashing down uh, the week after versus Kentucky. So you start the season one on one, then the ugly performance versus South Florida. You hope you can rally uh, and maybe do something against Tennessee. Not the case. It was a five point loss. Maybe not as close in some eyes, but you fought a way to find. You, you found a way to fight back, get back in that game late. Eastern Washington, Missouri, you back to back wins there, and then. Of course, if the LSU comes in and you kind of light the spark uh, there in LSU. They were coming off that loss to Tennessee. Uh, Jaden Daniels kind of makes his statement of the season by coming into the swamp and putting up 45 on Florida. When the LSU offense really wasn't all that uh, great coming into the game either. Of course, bye week and then Georgia, you're not really expected to do that. You make a close game in the third quarter, Georgia runs away with it anyway. Then, of course, what we've talked about the last month or so, you had a chance in November to really turn some things around. Uh, and it looked like Florida was on their way. You had some momentum. You had six quarters of great defensive football for the Gators. You beat Texas A&M. You beat South Carolina. You dominate South Carolina only to turn around. Cannot ride that wave of momentum. No consistency from this team shown once again. Inexcusable loss to Vanderbilt. And then get beat by Florida State after beating them three times in a row. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they were the team in the state of Florida when everybody was picking Florida and everybody's picking Miami to do good things with first year head coaches. Uh, Florida State was actually the team in the state of Florida, lo and behold, to uh, be, be the best team uh, in the state when it's all said and done. So, well, you know, pretty basically uh, I put it, but everybody, you know, no surprise, not really digging deep here. But on the surface, 
just a mark of inconsistency in Billy Napier's first season. Yeah, you say inconsistency, but I actually think when you look a little bit closer, they were really consistent. And the problem is they were consistently bad on defense. Yes. So you look yep. so you look at the four rivals. You got Or Tennessee. I can say the favorite saying, you know, consistently inconsistent. There we yeah, go. Yeah. So <laughs> I, no, they were consistently bad. I mean on defense, so, yes. Yes. So yeah. you look at the four rivals, Tennessee, LSU, Georgia, and Florida State. They yep. gave up forty two and a half points per game in those four games. The lowest amount they gave up was thirty eight to Tennessee. And that was only because Tennessee turned the ball over a couple of times. And so you those were like if you told me before the season they were gonna give up forty two point five points per game in those four games, I would have said, Oh crap, we're 0 and four. And that's exactly what happened. So to get yeah. to your eight and four season that you're talking about meant you had to be perfect everywhere else. And obviously that didn't happen, right? But even then, I mean, the 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 only other losses you have in addition to that are the loss to Kentucky, who was a pretty decent team, and then a loss to Vanderbilt, who wasn't, but obviously was much improved. Now, Kentucky and Vanderbilt are the things that you maybe blame Napier for or say you need to get up for teams and, and those sorts of things. But the win over Utah is somewhat impressive, especially when you factor in that they're in the Pac-12 title game. So really, I think they were consistently bad on defense. The offense had to make up for it from time to time. I think they got a little bit lucky to get Utah early in the year before Utah knew how bad they were on defense and exactly how to exploit them. And by the second half, they'd kind of figured it out. And they got fortunate that Bernie was able to get that interception so that they could secure that win. But again, if you'd have told me that they were going to get 42 points per game against those four, Tennessee, LSU, Georgia, and Florida State, I would have said we're already 0-4. And so that, to me, mm. is the thing. Is I don't know that they were all that inconsistent. I think they had, su- they had such a liability on one side of the field that it meant that the other side had to be perfect, and it just wasn't. And so you come out against Kentucky and you're, and you're bad offensively. We got no shot at winning that game. You come out against Vanderbilt and the offense just isn't clicking. And even against Vanderbilt, you don't have a shot to win that game because the defense gives up 31 points to, to Vanderbilt. Now, obviously, you have the special teams blunders, and there were all sorts, there was a comedy of errors in that one that wound up giving Vanderbilt points. But still, 31 points to Vanderbilt, you know, you're putting a ton of pressure on a unit that just was not perfect. And we knew the offense wasn't going to be perfect. The question was, how good could it be? And it was good, but not great. And it couldn't overcome that. So I, I really do look at it as you had this consistent motif of the defense just being bad throughout. And every once in a while, the offense was good enough to poke its head out and get a win. Sometimes the opponent was bad enough to allow the defense to stop them a little bit, like South Carolina. And sometimes the the program they were playing was dysfunctional enough that it didn't matter, <laughs> like Texas A&M. But when they played a team that was functional, when they played a team that had the ability to exploit the weaknesses that they had on defense, those teams were all able to take advantage of it. Even a South Florida team that was just awful this year yeah. was able to take advantage of the fact that Florida's defense could not get off the field. And that out of anything, I mean, we can talk about Napier and play calling and Richardson and and giving the ball to running backs more and all those different kinds of things. But the reality is, is that if this defense doesn't get fixed, this program isn't getting fixed. And so that's really, I think, where the emphasis needs to be. And the analysis needs to be going into the offseason for Napier and his staff. Yeah, I'm not saying by any means the offense was perfect. I know there's a whole lot of offensive coordinator talk out there, and does Billy Napier need that? And, you know, I put a tweet out there earlier this week. I'm not so sure OC as in play caller, but if it lightens up some other responsibilities that can make his job a bit easier, then okay, I'm all for it. 
Um, I thought there was enough plays there uh, to be made this year. I'm not so sure uh, consistent enough at quarterback to get those. Uh, I think that, and we got plenty of time to get into that. Probably next week, we'll, we'll I think we'll go through the roster uh, a bit and look back at our, I'm pretty sure, terrible over-unders. I know my are. Uh, <laughs> uh, when we get to our preseason uh, picks and we'll go back and review those. We'll get more into player-specific thoughts here. Uh, there, but you know, I, I, I think looking at the, of course, the results were inconsistent, but probably the Will's point inconsistent results because of consistently bad defense. And as you said, Will, I like the way you said that the offense would poke its head out <laughs> every now and then uh, to, you know, to, to, to change some of the fortunes there uh, for, for, for the results of the Gators. But yeah, it was just, I, I think, Will, the most frustrating part is not being able to build momentum when there seemed to be some. Like, there should have been some momentum after beating Utah. There should have been some momentum after beating Texas A&M and South Carolina. And maybe that's the mark of a first-year head coach. I know there's a lot of other first-year head coaches out there that had some success. And there's some, some reasons for, for, for some of those. And Lincoln Riley and USC and his Oklahoma transfers, of course. That would make sense for first year. Ryan Kelly probably overshot some expectations first year at LSU. Uh, but more than likely, it was always going to be more instant success than Billy Napier anyway, given – High program stature at Notre Dame, knowing a lot of the expectations. Okay, you can you can kind of explain that one uh, there too. Not to excuse what Napier has done at Florida and what Brian Kelly's done at LSU, but I think you can pinpoint maybe something why he's having some more success. Um, but maybe the momentum uh, uh, for Billy Napier not being and his team not being able to ride it, not being able to continue to build some, maybe that is the mark of a first year head coach at a big time program and the adjustment there. Well, now you're now you're getting me mad from the analytics side because we don't believe there is anything as mom, any such thing as momentum. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm saying that in jest, but I think that is yeah. true from game to game. the The reality of college football or any sort of football really is that each game, you know, you look at the result, and that's all great. But you know, one of the reasons we look at like post game win percentage and those sorts of things is that the score doesn't always tell you what's going on, and from the standpoint of like this team not being able to not being able to generate momentum well part of that it feels that way because you could never get a stop and if you can't get a stop then the only way you win a game is by outscoring your opponent or by keeping them off the field so how many times did it feel like we went through a half and florida had the ball twice because because the offense for the other team came down the field scored three touchdowns florida's offense scored two and you got five possessions and you know it's 21 to 14, but it doesn't matter because the offense barely got touched the ball. It really felt like that in the first half of the season and not really again till Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe that's because we were actually winning, but (laughs) right. Yeah. I mean, as I said, there were two wins in there with A&M South Carolina. Yeah. Well, but even, and it's funny because, you know, you look back at those and we got excited and we got those wins and I'm not sure we expected to get both of those wins, but A&M won the first half against Florida. Right. Mm-hmm. And South Carolina, as weird as this sounds, almost won the second half against Florida, too, except for the fumbles and the three fumbles that Florida was able to convert into seven points. But that was really it. Hey, that second half of Florida's offense turned out to be kind of an indicator of what they would do some in against Vanderbilt and Florida State with not capitalizing on turnovers and red zone issues. Yeah, but again, it's it's the inconsistency. I think was on the offensive side of the ball, not the defense. The mm-hmm. defense, the defense was consistently bad, which meant you couldn't gain any momentum. It meant that Anthony Richardson had to feel like he was perfect. It meant that if you have three three announcements against Florida State in a row, you're doomed. 
right? And there are other programs where you get three, three announced and you go, Hey, we're in a rock fight. Let's go. Let's go win it. And they don't have the horses on that side of the ball and they don't have certainly the experience and perhaps they don't have the scheme. I don't know. We're going to find out. Like I said, they stuck to their scheme in the Florida state game. And I think that's something we're going to learn is, you know, what is the scheme with the right players going to turn things around quickly or are they going to continue to struggle because you have to have your perfect player or in many cases have to have a more talented squad because look one of the things that louisiana that napier was able to do was able to put together a team that was more talented than any of the other than any of the other teams in the Sun Belt. and while he's bringing in more talent to gainesville than either jim McElwain or dan mullen did he is not going to have a more talented team than kirby smart or nick saban anytime soon and so you know look the jury is still out on whether the the scheme is going to be able to stop offenses in the way that they want it to. And I am a little bit concerned that there weren't any adjustments, especially coming out of the second half, because in the second half, Florida State made some adjustments. They came after Richardson yes. in that second half, and they made him really uncomfortable, and they blitzed him. And the minute he saw a guy blitzing, he became inaccurate. And you know they sort of let him sit back there, and they were like, well, we're going to let you throw against the zone in the, in the first half. And there were a few man-to-man opportunities where he was able to take advantage of it. But essentially, they were only bringing four. They were not blitzing. And he lit them up. And then the minute they made an adjustment, oh, okay, now all of a sudden things fall apart. They never made that adjustment against Florida State. They never made that adjustment against Vanderbilt, to be honest. And so some of the some of the losses are, are absolutely on the coaching and the scheme. The question is, were they making a point? And that may be the broader aspect of the inconsistency, Dave, is that there is value sometimes to just making a point and putting those guys out there and and showing them that when it's done correctly, it works, and when it's done incorrectly, it doesn't, and we need you to consistently do this stuff correctly because we're not going to switch. This is our identity. This is who we are. You're either going to buy in or you're not going to be here anymore. And, you know, I think you and I both expect there's going to be a significant number of players who leave over the next week or two. I think December 5th is the day that guys have to get into the transfer portal by. So we should expect in the next week or two to see – a significant portion of players who are going to be out the door. And I think that's going to be a big part of this, right? Is that the inconsistency and the inability to execute the schemes that are being asked are then going to be reflected in the players that decide to go, go elsewhere. Uh, there was, uh, there was one more place I wanted to go with this. I was, ah, man, it escapes me here. It may be, maybe something I'll bring back up. And later in the episode, oh man, you brought up a good point. I think I was trying to come back with something else. Well, I'll have to see if it comes back to me. <laughs> so much uh, going on this episode. So, uh, you, man, you brought up a good point on something. I was trying to, I didn't want to interrupt you again. Okay. If I, if I come back to it, I'll come back to it. Somebody help him in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we got plenty to get into uh, here for this uh, episode of Gators Breakdown. But before we do, holiday season coming up. Hey, you need that new, uh, you need a garage door, um, garage floor, you need it with a new look. What about that patio out there? Well, how about give our friends a shark coating to call? You know the goosebumps you get when Florida takes the field? Or when that 63-yard Hail Mary actually works? Or the thrill of a game-winning interception in the end zone? What a rush. You can experience that same rush every day at your home with shark coatings. We'll cover your old, ugly concrete with a beautiful industrial concrete coating and a warranty that lasts longer than most careers in professional football. So whether your garage floor is for parking, partying, or working out, 
Shark coatings can transform it. And if your pool deck is starting to look like a bulldog, old, cracked, and smells like pee, Shark Coatings can transform that too. Shark Coatings is easy to clean, stain resistant, and is 100% antibacterial and antimicrobial. We're easy on the eyes and on the maintenance. Gator Nation is worldwide, and Shark Coatings is based right in the heart of it. So whether you live in Brunswick, Georgia, or Live Oak, Florida, down to Ocala, over to New Smyrna Beach, or anywhere in between, contact us for a free estimate today. Learn more at sharkfloorcoatings.com. That's sharkfloorcoatings.com. All right, Will. So with all that, we just took a look at the Gators schedule, and here's what it meant for the final 2022 SEC standings. Of course, this weekend took a little bit of a hit with LSU losing to Texas A&M, but in Atlanta <laughs> in the SEC championship game is Georgia and LSU. Georgia still undefeated, 8-0, 12-0 overall. LSU 6-2 in the conference, 9-3. Not many people saw that one coming, but it is Georgia-LSU representing the SEC instead of, like most people pick, Georgia-Alabama. But Tennessee also kind of unexpected. They finished second to East. South Carolina third, of course, their late season push uh, with the big win over Tennessee, or they probably would have been in that three and five range along with Kentucky and Florida and Missouri. Um, But, yeah, yeah, you got uh, South Carolina – Four and four in the conference, finishing third. Their big finish to the season, of course, eight and four overall. I mean, well, that was the weirdest thing. Of course, I put it out. Uh, my thought: you had Florida beating uh, beating South Carolina. Both teams were sitting at six and four at the time. We thought Florida had the momentum. Little did we know, South Carolina was going to go on the late season run, beat Tennessee, and beat Clemson uh, to end their season. But they did end the conference season four and four. Uh, and then behind South Carolina, Kentucky, Florida, Missouri, all three and five. Of course, Kentucky did beat Florida. Um, and then, but they were seven and five overall as well. They got the win over Louisville, uh, to end the season. Florida three and five, Missouri three and five, both teams six and six overall. Vanderbilt with two conference wins, of course, uh, over Kentucky and Florida. So that changed their fortune from years past. Uh, Alabama second in the West, 10 and two overall, six and two in the conference. Mississippi State, Ole Miss, uh, Egg Bowl last week. Mississippi State comes out on top there, four and four, both teams, eight and four, both teams as well overall. Arkansas probably a little disappointing uh, overall to to, to some uh, finishing the season six and six three and five overall much like Florida. Uh, <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, if you want some silver lining, a lot of people were high on Arkansas and they finished six and six and three and five just like Florida does uh, this season. Auburn does not finish. Well, I mean, they're tied. Auburn and Texas A&M, I guess. Um, so, uh, but most people had Auburn in the cellar by themselves in the West, and of course, not Texas A&M, who finishes the season two and six by getting that big win over LSU uh, to end the season. I had a weird feeling about that game anyway. Uh, I wasn't sure A&M was going to beat LSU, but for whatever reason, I thought they would give them a game, uh, and they did. Uh, but five and seven overall, five and seven overall for Texas A&M. Of course, I think the biggest disappointment uh, in the country. Will, so going back, I'm not sure you put your predictions out as far as where Florida would finish in the East. Of course, I you know I put it out there before the season, so can't even erase it. Can't even lie about it if I wanted to. Uh, but I did have Florida second in the East behind Georgia, uh, and then I think I had Tennessee third, Kentucky fourth. wasn't too far on Kentucky. Uh, there, but of course, Florida not living up to uh, the expectation I had for them this season. Uh, and then I had Alabama in the West. Uh, of course, I'm not sure many people 
uh, unless they wear purple and gold behind the scenes, had LSU win in the West this year. But Georgia, the overwhelming favorite in the SEC this year. Well, well, 8-0, 12-0, heading into the SEC Championship. Yeah, so my stuff's out there because I, I sold a preseason magazine. That That's right. That, there, there, there you go. That's right. So so all you got to do to look at my predictions is slide <laughs> Florida up there to second in the SEC East, and then everything is right other than Florida because I had Florida You were pretty high on South Carolina. I was high on South Carolina. Yeah. I was low on Kentucky, I think, more than I was high on South Carolina. And then on the West, I came pretty close. I had Alabama first, obviously. I think, if I recall correctly, I had LSU second and then Auburn third. I thought Auburn was going to be better. I thought Old Miss and Mississippi State were going to take a step back. No, no, no. I had A&M second because I thought A&M was going to be pretty good. It is interesting, though, when you look at this, that there really are tiers, right? You've got Georgia, LSU, Tennessee, and Alabama in what I would call tier one. Then you've got South Carolina, Kentucky, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss in tier two. And then you got Florida, Arkansas, Missouri, Vanderbilt, Auburn, and Texas A&M in tier three. And I think if nothing else, this there are a couple things. Wait, 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 I will get you there. Uh, uh, Regrettably, I'll say tier one, Georgia. Tier two, LSU, Tennessee, Alabama. And then a tier three after that. So... uh, I, you're dead to me. I, I can't. I can't accept that they are in the same class as LSU, Tennessee, and Alabama, and will always be. And as much as I was rooting for Texas A&M against LSU, now I'm rooting for LSU because yes, there yes. Was, nothing will please me more than being able to call Georgia the SEC runner-ups for the second year in a row. But my point in naming off those tiers is that there's two things. One is Arkansas, Auburn, Texas A&M, Vanderbilt, Missouri, all have coaches who are not in their first year. So Florida is in that tier, but probably has more hope than any of those other five teams to get out of that tier. The other thing is if you look at recruiting for the 2023 class, Florida is better than every team in the East except for Georgia. So in terms of being able to vault up to that number two spot, Florida should be able to get into that top tier in relatively quick time. However, you also have to look at this and be realistic and say, we're in the bottom tier of the SEC, yep. and that's an, that's an unacceptable result. And so what are we going to change in order to get out of there? Because it's, you're not just going to solve that problem by bringing in brand new true freshmen, no matter how highly ranked they are. There's going to have to be buy-in. There's going to have to be discipline. There's going to have to be improvement and development for the guys who are already in the program. And quite likely, there's going to be people that you bring in from the transfer portal to replace some of the people who leave in order to aid in that development as well. But So I look at it and I go, Florida's not in a bad spot from the standpoint of they can get out of this tier pretty quickly, but they need to be honest with themselves and understand they are in this tier. And that if you don't make changes, you're going to stay in this tier. And that will not be acceptable long-term for Florida fans. And so uh, it's time to get to work. Absolutely, Will. We will get to that transfer portal talk in just a second. But let's take an overall look. As I said, we'll get more detailed into players next week. Um, But let's head over to some overall stats uh, for the Gators this season via team rankings. Uh, and reminder, if you use team rankings, and we like Will and I like them a whole lot because they throw away the cupcakes. Uh, stats only from games involving the FBS schools, so Florida's, you know, Utah game, SEC games, Florida game, uh, Florida State game, all that stuff there. So points per game for the Gators, forty eighth in the country, twenty nine point nine. Okay, modest uh, there overall, but points per game for the defense. 29.8. I mean, pretty much even. And that's good for 89th in the country there. Yards per game, 36th in the country at 420. 
defense gave up about the same at <laughs> 421 yards a game. That was good for 97th uh, in the country. Yards per play on offense, 24th. Big there for the Gators, of course. Carried by that rushing attack uh, for defense, giving up six yards of play. That was good for 110th in the country. Third down conversion percentage for the offense, uh, not terrible, but you know, kind of untimely this year. You'd love to see it a little bit higher there for the Gators. 40 and a half, basically 40 and a half percent there. Good for 44th in the country. Oof. There's my other oof for this episode. Opponent third down conversion for the defense, 127th in the country. We saw it on full display versus Florida State last Friday night. Like we saw all season long, Gators giving up 49. Point sixty six percent of opponents third down conversion not pretty and then red zone scoring well I didn't realize it was this bad for the Gators one hundred and sixteenth in the country on offense seventy five percent red zone scoring for the Gators uh, was pretty bad on defense as well giving up eighty five basically eighty five point four percent there opponent red zone scoring percentage that was good for eighty first in the country well what stands out to you there. What stands out to me in all of this is that this is the profile of a 500 team. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, hey, good point. <laughs> is that it turns out that every value on the left-hand side is really close to the values on the right-hand side, which usually mean you're going to go 500, and that's exactly what happened. Florida was 3-3 three and three in one-score games. They happened to lose the last two of the year. They were 3-1, and one, and so we're sitting there at 6-4 and four feeling all good about ourselves. And then they have a couple more one-score games, and granted, they felt different, but they were both seven-point games, and they end up 3-3. Three and three. And so Napier's not some dynamic. And honestly, that's kind of the difference between him and Mullen and him and McElwain is those guys were unbelievable in one-score games the first two years they were there. And I think in many ways masked some of the some of the holes that were there that then started showing up in year three and year four for those guys if they were able to make it to year four. Could the and, difference be a much better defense? Well, I think that's <laughs> some of it. I, I think the other – but, I mean, I think you can also say that, that Napier had a more dynamic quarterback. So yeah. – I, I think that in many ways the the game management that Napier has shown or lack of game management that Napier mm-hmm. has shown is real. And you know, there's no sense in 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 trying to sugarcoat that. There are things that need to improve, especially the last four minutes of the first half and the first four minutes of the second half where Florida just got mauled in just about every game that they played. And so he needs to improve as well. And I know people look at look at Louisiana and say, well, you know that's a different league and those sorts of things. And that's all true, but he was really good in one score games there. I think if anything, Napier has proven thus far that he's willing to be introspective and change things that aren't working in a way that we never got that sense from Dan Mullen. Now we'll see whether well, I got that my actually, point in and I got my point again, kind of going along with this. He's done it before. Sure. And he's that's great. A, he's had a struggle at one season. I know it's a different level, but you got to think he learned something there. And, w- and we'll find out if he did or not. It may not mean anything, but if you are looking for some hope, it was a struggle. We year one. That was his first overall year head coaching. So he had to learn a whole lot at Louisiana, more so than he did at Florida. It's just his first year at Florida, not his first year overall. But it was a struggle year one. There was a bounce back. I mean, so look, the teams that recruit in Florida's general area, um, and I'm going to have an article coming out later this week that details this in much, much more detail. But basically, they hey, win about yeah, pre- preview for that too. Will, that's one reason Will and I was late getting started on this. There's some really good stuff coming up there from Will. We were talking about it before the episode, so 
shout out to Will and a really good preview coming up this week. Yeah, well, thanks. We we lost track of time as I was going over <laughs> the stuff. But basically, teams in Florida's range for recruiting over the past you know decade end up winning about 60% of their games. So Napier wound up one win less than what you would expect based on the talent on the team. So everybody who sits here and goes, well, we're more talented than Kentucky. Well, we're more talented than Vanderbilt. You're absolutely true. that It's absolutely true that Florida's more talented than those teams, but the talent only takes you so far. Just because you're more talented doesn't mean you win 100% of the time. It means it gives you a 70 to 30 advantage. It means it gives you a 60, 40 advantage against some of those teams. And so sometimes you're going to come up snake eyes and hit those 40%. So I'm not all that discouraged at the six and six like that doesn't that doesn't kill me what kills me is the the lack of any sort of improvement on the defensive side of the ball and that things like you said regressed as we got towards the end of the year and those are the things that i think we in order to sort of restore hope in that bowl game i really want to see the defense come out and play well right and whether or not they and whether or not they're perfect, I don't think they will be. But you've now got a couple of weeks of practice where you can work on this stuff and start to instill it. Let's improve. And you don't have to improve everywhere. Let's improve in a couple of places. And and I think there's an, an opportunity to do that. But I also think that, to your point, it's unfair to judge Napier in terms of whether he can or can't turn this program around year one because there's a bunch of different reasons. But one of them is these aren't his players. Two is that they had a very difficult schedule to start with. Three is that he had inconsistency on both sides of the ball. But I think it's fair to say, look, the defense was a lot worse this year than it was last year with approximately the same players. And so that needs to improve and improve quickly. So it's sort of that double-edged sword, right? Where you look at yeah. it, like I'm not I'm not disappointed at six and six. I'm disappointed at the Vanderbilt loss making us six and six. And if they were seven and five and had pulled and had just won that Vanderbilt game by 15, we'd be sitting here going, okay, yeah, like everything feels great. It's that loss that weighs on you because there was there were coaching issues there. There were discipline issues there. There were all the things that we were sort of promised were that we thought were issues under Dan Mullen that were going to be taken care of under Billy Napier. And they're still popping up. Now, again, he needs to have some time to be able to fix those things. It's not you know, it's one of those things where if there's 47 problems to be dealt with and he got to the first 20, well, hey, we're 20 problems. You know, we, we've we've solved the first 20. The problem is there's still 25 problems <laughs> that he's got to deal with. And, and the question will be, what does that look like? And again, like I said earlier, I think we are expecting there to be a pretty significant departure rate of, of players who are on this team. And so this team's going to look a lot different next year than it does right now. All right, so now let's go a little more detail here. Uh, rush pass, both sides of the ball as well. Florida's offense, yards per rush, 5.6. That was good for fifth in the country. And that's, like I said, just involving the games versus two FBS schools. Uh, rushes per game, 37. Will I argue that could have been even higher <laughs> when you when you go back and uh, and look at it? Uh, sometimes I think I thought they either made or let Anthony Richardson pass too much. Uh, rushing yards per game, Gators two and two two hundred and seven and a half two hundred and seven and a half yards. That's good for sixteenth in the country. Uh, go to the other side, not so good for the defense. Uh, opponent yards per rush four point eight. That was good for a hundred and sixth in the country. Uh, opponent rush yards per game, 183. That was good for 104. I mean, a lot of over 100 ranks 
for this defense there for the Gators. Let's go to the passing statistics now. Um, yards per pass, uh, 7.3, not, uh, not a whole lot. Of course, there were some big plays there uh, by Anthony Richardson in, 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 this, in, in this receiver core, but all in all, not too much. Um, passes per game, yeah, r- about 29. Uh, like I said, I'd, in the games Florida won, it wasn't that high um, for the most part. Uh, passing yards per game, of course, 212. Uh, I wouldn't mind that if there was more rushing yards. Uh, to, to go along with it. Interceptions, uh, percentage thrown, 2.48, about two, two and a half. That was good for 67 uh, in, in the country. Quarterback sacks, good there. Jo- good job by the offensive line and Anthony Richardson avoiding sacks a whole lot. Uh, the stat that came out today, uh, of course, Osiris Torrance will not given up a sack in his whole career, which is unbelievable. But <laughs> uh, it, it, it translated uh, from Louisiana to SEC play at Florida. Going to the defense, of course, um, opponent yard per pass, pretty much eight. It was at 7.9. That was good for 105th uh, in, in the country. Opponent pass yards per game, 238. That was good for 81st uh, in the country there. Sack percentage, uh, 5.4. That was good for 88. So we'll get into it next week when we do our over-unders, but Florida didn't get anywhere near the sacks uh, this year that they were uh, getting under Todd Grantham's defense. Well, of course, we knew he was known for that. Didn't really help uh, in the end, of course, uh, making the defense better uh, there there for the Gators. But uh, breaking it down, Will, rushing, passing in more detail here. Uh, quickly, any, any, any of that stand out for you? I mean, I think there are two things. One is that the offense overall was pretty successful, but that it was dependent on the rush game. And when the rush game was stopped, then the offense was completely stagnant. And in college football today, you can't have that. You got to be able to throw the ball in college football. And, you know, uh, you'll hear the coach t- coaches talk about, oh, you got to run the ball to win. That's garbage. Throw for 10 yards an attempt, and it doesn't matter whether you can run the ball. And that's the way college football is. And so finding the guy who's going to be the quarterback, whether that's Richardson or whether that's somebody else who can get them into the eight, nine, 10 yards per attempt stratosphere is where they're going to have to be to really make this offense feel dynamic. And if you go and look at the time that Florida's offense under Mullen actually felt dynamic, turns out it was with Kyle Trask, who was right in that area, right? Averaging eight, nine, 10 yards a throw. And that's when the offense felt dynamic. And so if you feel like Napier's offensive scheme is vanilla, if you feel like it's unreliable, if you feel like it's very start and stop, one of the reasons you feel that way is the guy pulling the trigger this year was not able to to allow it to be consistent. And we saw that sort of at its extremes in the Florida State game. The other thing is, is that Florida did not help itself when you look at just overall special teams. I don't know. Do you have a, a uh, thing on special teams here? I do, yes. Uh, it should be here, I think. Some special there team stats, go. I believe. All right, because where I was going was their well, actual. That's just kicking, my bad, sir. No. Okay. Yeah. So where I was going was actually their field position. Their average start on on defense was sixty seven and a half yards from scoring. So versus their offense that was seventy two yards from scoring. So the there was about a five yard difference between where their defense had to defend and where their offense had to start from. And that essentially put them behind the eight ball in every single game that they played. Now, some of that is because they stubbornly refused to stop bringing the ball out on kickoffs or at least early in the year. Some of that is penalties that occurred on those sorts of things. And before they put ETN back there. 
Yep. Some of that is having the the wrong personnel back there. And some of that is the turnovers. You know, you end up with zero defensive yards to go when you, when you turn over a punt that gets muffed into the end zone. So there's a bunch of things that factor into there. But I think from the standpoint of they didn't win the little things, the edge things that could make a difference, that they were actually giving the opponent points just in terms of starting field position as opposed to uh, – as opposed to gaining them. And then on defense, particularly on, on passing downs. So the success rate on the success rate on defense was really, really bad. It was 44% overall and then 38% on passing downs, which is just really bad. And then they gave up, they gave up really, really explode a ton of explosive plays, particularly in the passing game. Uh, when you look at the advanced stats overall, um, you know their explosiveness metrics and success rate metrics and things like that. Um, they didn't create a whole bunch of havoc um, on the defense. The offense was really good at protecting uh, Anthony Richardson, but the defense wasn't very good at creating any havoc. So what you had was a team that was relying on turnovers, gave up a bunch of explosive plays, didn't have a whole lot of success when the when they couldn't get any sort of havoc on on the offense and didn't and didn't have good starting field position and if it feels like florida always gave up touchdowns when there was a turnover or something like that the reality is that they did they gave up 4.3 points per opportunity uh so anytime the the opponent had the ball inside the 40 yard line they had 4.3 they gave up 4.3 points on those opportunities and that's bad so the offense was scoring 3.8 that's actually pretty good um but 4.3 would be like elite on the offensive side of the ball if you scored that many times every time you got inside the opponent 40, right? Because sometimes you're gonna have a turnover, sometimes you're gonna yeah. you're gonna turn it over on down, sometimes you're gonna sell for a field goal. So the fact that they're giving up more than a field goal on 71 opportunities to me suggests exactly where the problem lies. And again, I get why people are asking for an offensive coordinator, but I think with more consistent quarterback play, mm-hmm. the offense is gonna feel much much different. And then with a defense that can actually stop somebody, you won't need the quarterback to be quite as efficient either. And so I think we sort of hit an amalgam of of circumstances here where Richardson was probably the wrong quarterback for as bad as this defense was. And the team would have felt a lot different if Richardson had been at the helm with a defense that could get stops or if you had maybe somebody like Jack Miller or Jalen Kitten in there who could be more consistent because the defense was uh, was struggling so much. But obviously, um, because of the explosiveness of Richardson and because of sort of the 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 ability to overcome some of his deficiencies, <laughs> that really opened things up, I think, in the running game and then also allowed Florida to at least have a dynamic offense, if not a consistent one. Yeah, I do wonder if some of those late half situations, late game situations were – more AR limitations, more so than nature limitations. Uh, that's something we'll have to kind of let time go and see as well. Uh, I know there's the part of adapting to your personnel, and hey, look, that's that's valid. That's valid, but hey, look, all water under the bridge now. We'll kind of just have to see if more of Billy Napier's talent that he acquires changes some of those things. Uh, all right, some miscellaneous stats here before we move on to some roster management notes before we sign off here on this episode. Uh, kicking statistics here, Gators field goal conversion percentage, not great. Uh, you know, special teams were, uh, of course, uh, Will mentioned it too, but kickoff punt, punt returns, of course. Uh, you see, uh, I know Henderson was back there most of the year. We weren't really excited to see that after him being there previous years as well. Not much going on. You see Ricky Persaud gets some opportunity back there. 
and there did seem to be a little more electricity back there in the punt return. Same with ETN in the kickoff return. So uh, I think we may see some preview of next year, what we can uh, expect in those two spots, uh, of course. Uh, now, turnover statistics, of course, as well. Um, got better. Uh, for the offense as the year went on. We, call it, we we know the turnover machine Anthony Richardson was uh, in the first at least quarter of the season, almost to the first half of the season, but those first few games really, really bad uh, for Anthony Richardson when he was tossing interceptions before he was tossing touchdown passes. Uh, giveaways a game. They were 44th in the country with 1.3 uh, there for the, for the Florida offense. Uh, interception percentage tied for 67th. In the country, but the Gator defense, uh, of course, if there was one thing could, you could kind of put a feather in the cap on, is they be, they were able to create some turnovers uh, this season. Twelfth in the country, one point nine takeaways a game uh, there for, for for the Gators defense. So, you know, at least they were able to get that, get the offense the ball even more. But we'll talk about this before the episode penalty t- t- statistics and. It was a little surprising to see Florida so high in some of these rankings and penalties. I know the last couple of games, as we pointed out earlier, uh, were pretty detrimental for the Gator squad. But uh, penalties per play for the Gator offense, it was .05. That was 96 in the country. Penalties per game, 6.6. That was 87th in the country. But penalty yards per game, uh, 44. So kind of modest there. When you get that many penalties where you're 87th in the country, the yards are only equal to 44th uh, in, in the country. Uh, their penalty yards per penalty was only 7.2. That was third in the country there for the Gators. So, as I said, it really got bad those last couple games uh, of the season. But as a season as a whole, not too many yards uh, hurting the Gators. Uh, the defense, though, yeah, it, it was. That, 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 that's where it really cost the Gators. They were opponent penalty yards per game for 43. 43.8, that was good for 107th in the country. Uh, yards per penalty, 7.9, that was 115th in the country. I didn't realize it was that bad, Will. <laughs> I mean, again, I go back to what I said earlier, which is I'm not sure that you measure discipline by penalties. <laughs> and I think you measure discipline. Honestly, this is one where I think you measure it via eye test or yeah. you measure it by like number of unsportsmanlike penalties on third down per game or something like that. I, I don't know how you measure those discipline penalties other than maybe going and actually starting to count them up. And the thing is, is like you go back to the Vanderbilt game and there was just a litany of errors, but the errors were in different areas the whole time down. I think that's maybe the thing that if there was a stat that just was like potential points given away or or gained, that Florida mm-hmm. definitely gave away more points than they gained this year in terms of their overall discipline. And I think you see that in the field position stats. I think you see that a little bit here in the penalty stats. I think you certainly see it in the turnover stats, though the turnovers I think are a little bit misleading just because I think they had so many shots and so many plays that eventually they were able to get some turnovers. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there are some uh, there are some stats out there. I know Nick Newton looked earlier this year at like the theoretical yards that could have been gained versus the actual guards, yeah. the yards that were gained. And after the LSU game, it was something really ugly. Um, and I suspect that they didn't get a whole lot prettier as the season went along. So there are a lot of different ways to measure discipline. I think we can beat the dead horse all we want, but this was not a very disciplined team, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And that's going to have to improve. I'm just not sure that you measure it with penalties. It's, it's, yeah. 
you know, like when when uh, we were talking before we came on that when Brandon Spikes hit Noshawn Marino in the in the Florida Georgia game and just laid him out, you know, it was sort of you know, jawing at him while he's on the ground. Like these days, that's a penalty, but I'd be happy to see that sort of play, you know, in the Florida Georgia game next year. If Florida's middle linebacker comes up and just absolutely um, obliterates the running back for Georgia and he gets a 15-yard penalty, yeah, I'll say that's a dumb penalty, but in some ways that's sort of the attitude and the swagger and all those things that's associated well, it, with that. It, it, two more. Yeah, Brandon Spikes punting the ball in the end zone versus LSU. Andre Caldwell scoring and throwing the ball into the crowd. At like a court. I mean, like you said, it, yeah, it's not the ultimate. And I'm sure a coach on the sideline doesn't really – you know, care to see it either, but probably in the locker room, it's just like a, Hey, all shucks. You did that. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, and it comes back to your, when you don't have elite talent, you have to squeeze everything out mm. of the guys that you do have. Yeah. And so those sorts of things really start to make a difference when you're Wisconsin or when you're Iowa, or quite honestly, right now when you're Florida, and that doesn't mean that Florida has no talent, but it does mean that their talent is not at a point. Like there is no Brandon spikes on the roster right now. There is no Percy Harvin on the roster right now. And Percy Harvin could do something like that and cost him a 15 yard penalty. Cause guess what? He's going to get 35 yards in the next play. And, <laughs> There are very few players on this roster who have shown that. And one of the things I was actually thinking during the Florida State game as Jordan Travis was running around is how many times have we had a game where someone was chasing Anthony Richardson around and was just like frustrated at the inability to actually get him to the ground? Where Utah, the Utah mobility, game, maybe? Maybe, but even that one, I wouldn't say that Utah like was walked out of that game going, we just couldn't stop him. Now, they couldn't stop him right at the end, but I don't think they walked out of that one going, that guy single-handedly beat us. And I think that's what that's what Florida fans walked out of Doe Campbell saying is that Jordan Travis single handedly beat Florida. That if they if they'd had you know Thad Busby back there, some guy with zero mobility, then Florida wins that game. And the fact well, that heck, they, if they had Jordan Travis last year, Jordan Travis. <laughs> well, so it turns out you can develop a quarterback apparently. <laughs> or, or, and hey, good for him, right? I, I think that that's that that's that's. That's great for him. But what I would what I was trying to say is that when you're on the margins, you need to get every single edge you can. And Florida did not get those edges this year. And is Napier going to be a guy who consistently gets those edges? I don't know. But I think if you ask about Urban Meyer and did he always consistently get those edges, you were just talking about multiple circumstances where his team made stupid 15-yard penalties, but we didn't care because Florida won the game by 20 points at the end of the day anyway. And you're like, okay, they were that much better than the opponent that it didn't matter. And there was no game this year where I felt like Florida was so much better than the opponent. Maybe South Carolina, but there, you know, what game? And East Carolina or Eastern Washington, definitely. But those yeah. were the only two games I look at, and I go, okay, we're so much better than the opponent that we can screw around and we can do extra stuff. Whereas I feel like there, there are games where Georgia right now could just walk in, roll out the ball, commit penalty after penalty after penalty, and probably still walk out with a win. And there's a difference between those two, and. You know, I think if you look back, and in fact, I know that if you look back at Kirby Smart's season, his first season in 2016, just the game against Tennessee was a comedy of errors between him and and Butch Jones. Now, you know, Butch obviously no longer there at Tennessee for various reasons, some of which have to do with his ability to coach in game. But a bigger reason is, is that he was down in the Florida area of recruiting and needed all those edges. So he needed to execute on all those little things that gave him an edge. Whereas 
Kirby Smart hasn't had to do that. And in fact, when he has, it's cost him a national championship, right? I mean, I think you can make some arguments that some of the decisions that he's made in some of the playoff games have cost his team championships. Now, last year they were able to get it done, but you know there were some questions about whether he was going to be able to get it done because of some of his in-game coaching. And it turns out that even with Stetson Bennett at quarterback, they had just an elite transcendent defense last year and were able to get it done. I'm actually curious to see whether they're going to be able to do it this year. I know you had them up in that tier one, but I've watched Stetson Bennett play. And I know that their defense isn't as good as it was last year. It's still good, but it's not as good as it was last year. And I do wonder whether there's going to be a closing of the gap between some of the teams that's going to play in this playoff. And and well, I don't think overall col- I don't think overall college football is as good this year. Well, I think that's true too. But again, this is sort of what I'm getting at is if if Kirby came back to the pack a little bit in terms of if if Bennett's struggling and if the defense is a little bit worse, well, now he's going to have to figure out how to get those little edges. Can he get those little edges or is he going to do something that costs his team three points or seven points or 14 points in an important game and is Georgia going to go down? I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is, is that until he got to Alabama last year, he couldn't screw that one up. <laughs> the, the way the defense was and and as consistent as Bennett was playing um, for the most part, though he played badly in the in the Florida game, but as consistently as Bennett was playing and as good as that defense was, no one was beating them during the regular season. It took a team like Alabama getting hot to beat them in the SEC championship game, and then they couldn't sustain it in the in the rematch, and that's how you end up with George as the national champion. So I, I think there's Again, I just go back to Florida right now needs Napier to get every edge. And if he's not going to do that, then there's another way to build, and he's going to have to build that way. Um, otherwise, he's going to have to keep seeking those edges, and that'll mean, that means he'll have to improve too. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, let's get to uh, roster management right quick, Will. That would be something we kind of review uh, and look ahead a little bit at the same time. Of course, transfer portal uh, opening up, uh, of course, for – college football on December 5th. So, of course, uh, instead of being able to leave a school at any time, players now have to enter the transfer portal within set dates. Uh, Of course, you hear announcements now, but nothing official until December 5th, and it closes 45 days later, January 18th. So between now and December 5th, you're going to hear announcement galore uh, of guys putting their name into the transfer portal. And look, it can say the window's 45 days. If you want to be in the class, you're probably going to have to be in before early signing day for the most part. I think uh, a lot of this is going to take shape uh, before early signing day on December 21st, I believe. So they can say December 5th to January 18th. There might be some that lag behind right before national signing day in February. Uh, I think that's why they put that January 18th as the end date there. But December 5th, right after the uh, the championship game weekend, uh, being, that, being that day, I think decisions are going to be made pretty fast here in the next – or starting for the 45 days, starting December 5th. But for the Gators, some roster management will has already happened. Of course, today we announced uh, – Florida, it was announced that Avery Helm – Cornerback for the Gators would transfer. And the number of cornerbacks Florida's bringing in this class, of course, what Florida already has as well. Uh, once Jaden Hill returned, Avery Helms' playing time went down. Uh, no surprise, really, when you sit and think about it with the numbers Florida has at the cornerback position. And then, of course, we've talked about some of these uh, throughout the last few weeks, mostly kind of concentrated on the season. Not a lot of 
uh, threat here for Florida as far as roster detriment that happened with a lot of these announcements. Tied in defensive lineman, offensive lineman, Griffin McDowell, uh, linebacker Dewan Black, of course, one of the more popular names there. Uh, a lot of people want a success for Dewan Black, but he was dismissed uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Tied in Nick Elksness, uh, didn't see a whole lot of playing time, was a lot injured uh, a good bit. Uh, dating back to the spring, good um, at least in high school here in Jacksonville, a good run after the catch uh, tied in. Just did not get to see uh, enough of Nick Elksness in his time there. Uh, Trent Whittemore, probably the biggest one, Will. I know you and I spoke about that. Uh, that one was probably the more polarizing uh, of the bunch there. I think uh, a lot of people out there thought he should get more uh, of an opportunity, but seeing he was behind Ricky Pearsall and more of that slot role, very easily – uh, very easy to see why uh, he wasn't getting the playing time, especially what we saw Pearsall do at the beginning of the uh, Florida State game. Uh, offensive lineman Josh Braun, of course, through two staffs, was not really able to – one of the higher offensive line recruits uh, in Dan Mullins um, and, and John Hevesy's recruiting uh, over the last few years, just not able to break through now through on two staffs there along the offensive line. Then long snapper Marco Ortiz, defensive back Kamara Wilcoxon, an offensive line, uh, outside linebacker Brenton Cox, who was dismissed uh, right after the Georgia game, uh, of course, there. So there's kind of your roster catch-up. I would expect more names coming soon as far as an exodus goes from this Florida Gator roster heading into the transfer portal. And then we'll, we'll see who Florida – I expect Florida to be very active as well, bringing guys in from the transfer portal. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. I suspect that at this point, everybody pretty much knows where the musical chairs are going to end up. That there have been discussions and back channels for all these guys. I, yeah. I don't know whether I, I think maybe two, three, four years ago, the players were probably um, naive to the to the transfer portal process, and you wound up with guys who went into the portal and then had nowhere else to go. I think for the most part, if you're going into the portal at this point, you've probably had discussions with someone, whether <laughs> whether that's a reputable someone or not. I guess is the question, and and what it's going to be. But so Florida. Just generally probably has a pretty good take on or a pretty good bead on who's going to be available and who they could potentially go after. And it's the same thing with these guys. These are guys who clearly, I mean, look, the, the only guy on this list, well, there's two guys on this list who were real contributors this year. Cox, one of them, and obviously he got dismissed from the team. And then Helm was a contributor at cornerback. Everybody else was at least on the second unit, if not a little bit deeper on the depth chart. And so these are the guys who are going to leave when, you know, Napier's bringing his guys in. I don't think that's a surprise. And I think it's a healthy thing. I think one of the things that if you look back at the Mullen era that was unhealthy is that 2020 team was just dominated by Jim McElwain recruits. And the minute those guys left, the whole bottom fell out. And we don't want to see that happen. We want to see healthy turnover. Now, that does mean you're going to have to hit on Napier's recruits, and he's going to have to have some guys who probably play early, maybe even a little bit out of their depth at the same time, um, getting those guys in here, getting them situated within the program, and getting them to hopefully go into the NFL three years in is really the goal. And you're going to have an opportunity to do that rather than having guys stay for four and five years and sticking around for a COVID year and those sorts of things. I think at this point, Roster management is going to be more about every three years turning things over as opposed to trying to squeak, squeeze as much as you can out of guys who happen to hit. Yeah, and now looking at it too, Will, of course, uh, we look at who, uh, like Jordan Pouncey, Ventral Miller, Amari Bernie, Trey Dean, those guys gone, Lorenzo Lingard, Naquan Wright, 
Um, Justin Shorter, uh, you know, won't be a part. Ricky Pearsall here, likely. Um, will probably stick around for another year at Florida, so he's got some eligibility left. Uh, Osiris Torrance, of course, expected to go to the draft. Richard Garage has a decision uh, coming up if he'll return or not. Uh, so there's you know, a couple names there to maybe look uh, forward to as maybe declaring for the draft. Of course, Anthony Richardson uh, will be waiting for his announcement as well. And the, the thought to whether he's ready or not is he will be going uh, to the NFL draft. But we'll see when and where uh, we hear about that. Uh, of course, uh, one big storyline uh, we're waiting for here as part, as, uh, as part of Gator Nation to see what uh, uh, Anthony Richardson does uh, in his future. And, of course, he declares will. That probably opens the door up for a transfer quarterback to come in and battle it out with Jaden Rashada. And uh, guys already on the roster of Jack Miller and Jalen Kitna. We've got plenty of time to get into that if and when it happens. Uh, but some interesting roster moves coming up, Will. And, hey, look, early signing day, not that far away as well. Visits will be starting to happen on campus coming up in the next few weeks as well. Uh, to recap there, 2024 or 2023-24-7 sports recruiting rankings, Alabama 1, Georgia 2, Notre Dame 3, Texas 4, LSU 5, Ohio State 6, Oklahoma 7, Florida 8, Clemson at 9, Miami 10, Tennessee 11. Well, I still think we got plenty to talk about these next few weeks. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. I, it's funny. Like everybody will start freaking out. I saw, I think it was Rick Wells put something on Twitter today about guys leaving the program. And it was right before Helm announced that he was leaving. And I'm sitting there going, it's a program that's gone six and six for the last two years. Like change needs to occur, right? Yeah. Like turnover is good. Like that is a positive thing. Now, obviously if you end up with no offensive lineman at the end of it, then that's <laughs> a problem. But, but I don't think that Napier is naive to who's going to stay and who's going to leave. He hopefully has a pulse and a relationship with all the guys on the team and, and hopefully has encouraged them. Like, you know, I, I look at it and I mean, I say this to people who work for me too, is my job is to make you more marketable to the world in general and then pay you commensurate with what your value is to the company that I work for. And I feel like college football is sort of the same way that if you're a coach, your job is to get guys to the NFL, but it's also to prepare them to be successful in that next phase. And sometimes preparing somebody to be successful is to go, look, we got a guy coming in next year who's going to start and he's going to start for a lot of different reasons. And he may not even be better than you when he comes in here day one. But he's going to be better than you six games in, eight games in, 12 games in. And so for you to improve and you to get the reps you need and get the attention you need, you need to go someplace else. And that's an honorable thing to do if you're a coach, to, to go and say that and say, look, I know you committed here. You didn't commit to me. And so I didn't commit to you, right? I didn't actually give you any promises about your playing time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you that turnover is best for all of us. So I'm not going to freak out if people leave. I'm mm -hmm. going to smile and I'm going to wish them well. I hope they do well. I hope all the guys who transfer out of Florida and go someplace else play really, really well wherever they go. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm glad when Chester Kimbrough gets an interception. I'm glad when Chris Bogle gets a sack. I'm glad when Tyron Hopper plays well against Georgia, not so much when he plays well against Florida, but those are all guys. I hope they do well because they, 
they have an opportunity that not a lot of us do to get to the pros and they got to do what's best for them in order to try to get that opportunity. Whether it's through NIL money that they get now while they're in college or whether it's getting those contracts in the NFL, you got to do what's best for you. And to be honest, there are guys who Napier's program and what Napier's trying to build are not going to be right for them. Like this year you had to sort of patch things with fifth year seniors and super seniors and things like that. If you're still patching things with, with fifth year seniors next year, that's a problem. Mm. Right. In fact, you'd rather be losing with like sophomores yeah. and juniors than you would have guys who are fifth year who you've got to replace. And that's not a knock at Ventral Miller. It's that if Ventral Miller had another year of eligibility, I'd be saying, he might be a really valuable piece at a school that's really close to getting over the hump. But in year two of Napier's rebuild, I'm not sure that that person has the same value to the Florida program as opposed to getting in a really skilled you know, four or five star linebacker. And you say, you're starting day one, so you better get the reps and you're going to, you're going to be prepared to go day one and you need to be the quarterback of the defense. And same thing with the quarterback position, right? If Anthony Richardson decides to leave. Okay. Well now there's real value in getting a guy in there and getting him reps all off season, getting him ready to go as opposed to competing with a guy like Richardson. And then if Richardson goes down with an injury or something like that, well now, you know, who do you have behind him, which is kind of where we were this year. So I think, Building up that depth, but really building up the confidence in the guys who are coming into the program is a big part of this. And guys leaving is just the natural, the natural side effect of that. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Gators Breakdown. Seasons, no more game to talk about. Will we'll see what happens with the bowl game uh, and the Gators, uh, Birmingham Bowl, Las Vegas Bowl seems to kind of be the two that are thrown out there right now. Uh, Vegas Bowl versus UCLA uh, or the Birmingham Bowl versus, I think, Memphis uh, is what I saw. So give me the uh, Las Vegas Bowl any day. I, but look, I don't even know what Florida – I don't even know who would be on Florida's roster uh, <laughs> when the game uh, is played. You know, we're, just talk, we're sitting here talking about transfers, and if guys are going to transfer out, they probably are not going to want to play uh, 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 for the Gators in the bowl game. So who knows what the team will look like. Uh, when the bowl game is decided, we'll find that out Sunday night. Uh, I'll probably throw a quick episode together to kind of uh, of initial reaction of who Florida draws in a bowl game, but that's kind of seems the two likely ones right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I think if you're a Gator fan who's going to go to the bowl game, Las Vegas or Birmingham, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear yeah. where, where you'd probably want to there, go. There's plenty of reasons to want the Las Vegas Bowl versus you, if, if UCLA is the team too. But uh, Well, and hey, you either go to a casino and celebrate after a Gator win or you go to a casino and drown your sorrows <laughs> trying to win some money after the after the, after the the Gators lose. So <laughs> there's probably a betting strategy there where you can where you can end up happy regardless of what happens in the game. But uh no, nah, I mean, look, Vegas is a great town. I've, I've enjoyed my time out there, and uh, that is definitely – I'm pretty sure that based on schedules and things like that, I'm not going to be going to this one. But yeah. uh, Well, that was on I, a Saturday, too, so that's another reason I hope it's the Vegas Bowl because that was hmm. a Saturday. So <laughs> Maybe I will. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to swing that one, man. I, <laughs> I got too much stuff going on during the holidays. But, uh, you know, I, from the standpoint of, like, for fans and enjoyment and the players and enjoyment, oh, man, the Vegas Bowl is so much better. Give us that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, we're getting up for a bowl games hard enough these days, uh, but you go say you got to play in cold Birmingham with a you know a roster that may be gutted with guys leaving the program. Uh, <laughs> guys, huh. I mean guys will be. Uh, yeah, Music City Bowl. I see some people throwing that in there too. I have heard that one. Um, 
Gasparilla, I don't know if they can play in that one in back-to-back years. I know that some bowl games have you can't take the same team two years in a row. Uh, so uh, that, that uh, as far as record goes, I know that could you know, Florida's got the same record they had last year going into bowl season. That could be uh, in the mix. I don't know if the Gasparilla has that uh, contingency or not. Uh, if they can take the same team two years in a row, but uh, if uh, hey, I'm, just, I'm sure they'd like it if they could get the Gators again because it being in Tampa. But I'm just in favor of Las Vegas because if we if we need to weed out discipline problems, nothing's going to do it <laughs> like having a curfew in Las Vegas, buddy. <laughs> good point. Good point. Good point. All right, well, uh, we kind of teased it a little bit, but one more time, what you got coming up this week on Read Reaction? Yeah, so I'm going to be looking at Napier's recruiting class, and really I've, I've taken a pretty in-depth look at recruiting classes all the way back to 2015 and what that means in terms of winning percentage and who's winning, who's not. Um, I think there's some good news in there for Gator fans. I think there's also some concerning stuff. And so looking at you know where the, where the class is now, what has to happen to finish off, and what we should expect in early signing day and, and that sort of stuff. So um, you know, it's probably going to be a series of articles over the next few weeks sort of breaking things down, but starting out with what's happened historically and NIL obviously has changed the landscape, but, uh, you know, I, I think it is, it's instructive. I showed you some of the charts before we came on here and you look at it and go, huh? Like, at least I looked at it and went, I wouldn't have expected it to be quite like that. And, uh, so I think that's kind of cool because there are times where, you know, you yell top three class, top five class, top seven class. Was that really true? And so is it, or is it not? That's sort of the question that I'm trying to answer. Yeah. And, uh, you show it can, it can go deeper. Then top three, top five, top seven, top ten. So uh, Will's got some good stuff coming out, guys, this week at Read and Reaction. Uh, you check him out at Read and Reaction on YouTube as well. And make sure you follow him on Twitter. He shares the articles there at Will Miles SEC. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thank you for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>